The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, it was in the early 90s where I got and my family got what would be probably one of the best gifts of my childhood when we got a Super Nintendo. A Super Nintendo, all right? Some of you kids are like, those things were once new. Yes, once in a day that you were new and people lived to hear them come out and talk about it. I remember my favorite game on the Super Nintendo. There was a bunch of different games I played, but my favorite was just the classic Super Mario Brothers, all right? Super Mario Brothers. And in Super Mario Brothers, you had to go through different worlds. And kind of at the end of each world, there would be like a castle that you would go through and it'd be the hardest level with a boss at the end. But then there would always be another world, another world. Till in Super Mario World, eventually you got to the end and dun, 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 it was Bowser's Castle. Once you got to Bowser, you knew it was going to be the hardest at the end, right? It was the hardest level at the end. The most difficult was safe for last. And you had to muster all your first, second, third grade energy and focus into beating these levels in order to defeat it. Well, it's kind of this similar idea in the signs that we've been looking through in John. And today we come to the final sign in John, the seventh sign, and it's the last enemy. It's the ultimate enemy to see, can Jesus defeat this enemy? See, we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him heal the sick, the lame, the blind. We've seen him provide food for thousands of people and to walk on water. And this final enemy that Jesus faces today is death itself. Death itself. Jesus has done powerful things that show who he is and reveal his character, but can Jesus overcome the ultimate enemy of all of humankind, which is death? Jesus saves, if you will, his best for last. And today, as we look at the story of the death of Lazarus and Jesus's actions after that, I invite you, if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 11. Um, The text is printed as well in the handout that you received today. Today, we're going to look at four sources of hope that each of us can have in the face of death. Four sources of hope that we have in the face of death. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're grieving a loss in your family. Maybe recent, maybe it's been a while, but grief is not a slow process. And I hope that this message can be an encouragement to you. Maybe you're facing either in your own life or in the life of people you love, a possibility of this in the near future. And I pray that it would be an encouragement to you. And as I've been praying and studying in this text this week, it hasn't been lost on me that these talks about death and seeing Jesus in the midst of it to us are often hypothetical, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan, these are not abstract truths. These are things that they cling to each and every day as they don't know what today or tomorrow may look like simply because of who they place their faith in. And so let's dive in. And my hope is that this can challenge and confront and comfort each and every one of us today. John chapter 11, verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. This was a well-known family in the time. The story of Mary actually occurs in the next chapter in John, but it's so well-known that John can reference to it before it happened. 
And these are sisters and brothers, siblings who are dear, dear friends of Jesus. Verse three. So the sister is sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We're gonna talk about that more. You're like, wait, what? He loved them, so he stayed? Yes, he loved them, so he stayed. Verse seven, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, "Um, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you were going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the lights of the world. He's referring to himself as long as he is here there in the day. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, I'm Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. This is a good thing. He's sleeping. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. The the first source of hope that we see in this passage in the face of death is the purpose of Jesus. The purposes of Jesus give us hope even in the face of death. See, the ultimate purpose of all things in Jesus's ministry and in all of history is recounted in this phrase here in verse four, when he says, it is for the glory of God. See, the glory of God is the pinnacle, the chief purpose of all of creation, all of history is so that God himself would be glorified. See, it's a phrase that we use a lot. It's in the Bible, the glory of God, but so often we don't really stop and think about what does that mean? I love what one pastor spoke about the glory of God. He says this, the glory of God is the beauty and excellence of his manifold perfections. It is an attempt to put into words what God is like in his magnificence and purity. It refers to his infinite and overflowing fullness of all that is good. God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. And everything in the world exists so that God would be made known, that he would be glorified. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God. In Isaiah 43, he says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. We were made for his glory. And it's why summarizing what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus in this world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In all of life, it's so that God would be glorified. As the Westminster Catechism first question asks, what is the chief end of man? The chief end, the main goal of each of our lives. 
It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our chief purpose in life. The greatest purpose in all things is that God would be glorified, even in suffering and even in death. In all things, this is God's greatest purpose that he would be glorified and all events orchestrates that he would be glorified to the maximal amounts. And so yes, death itself does not even stop God being glorified. He says, this has happened for my glory. So that's the purpose of ultimately for God and that every situation he would be glorified. But in, in our situations, the, the purpose that he has for each of us is a greater faith and a greater trust in him through these things. Notice what he says in verse 15 to the disciples. He says, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. If you've journeyed with us through this, you know that that was the purpose of the sign miracles all throughout John so that you may believe. But if you were here the first week we looked at this when Jesus turned water into wine, the last concluding, the last concluding sentence in that section was, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed. But now he's saying we go so that you would believe. Well, did they believe or did they not believe? Which is it? Yes. Yes. See, faith, <clears throat> faith is not just the entrance into a relationship with Jesus. Faith is the path to deeper intimacy with him as well. Too often we think of faith as this boundary marker and either we're in or we out. Do we got faith or do we not have faith? And Jesus says, okay, you have faith, but I'm going disciples so that your faith may grow even deeper. And their circumstances and the purposes of Jesus in our lives is that in every situation, in every circumstance, our faith would be stretched, would be grown just a little bit more. Do we have faith? If we're a follower of Jesus, yes. Can we grow more? Can we trust him more? Yes. And that's God's purpose in every situation that he would push us to a greater belief in him. But lest we think that he does this because he's some cold-hearted, cruel being, we need to reflect on verse five, the motivation that Jesus had for this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. Jesus is not being some cold, heartless person in what he does by waiting two days. We're gonna see why he does that. But he waits out of his great love for them. That's his motivation. Jesus is motivated by love and the people found themselves in a position of hardship, of difficulty and loss. See, Jesus's love will often push us to do things that may be challenging for us. Out of love, Jesus will put us in difficult situations because he cares about us so much. He wants to stretch. He wants our faith to increase. And so he allows that to be tested so that we may grow. Now, if you've seen our daughter at all on Sunday mornings, you've noticed that even in the short time we've been here in the two months, she's gone from the idea of crawling everywhere to now walking everywhere. And the world is never the same for a child or for her parents that matter 
once the transition makes that, that place, right? And so one of the things in our home that, that we have is we have a staircase and it's kind of one of those staircases that I think the longest step is like five. It kind of curves down. And she's always been able to, for months, been able to speed race up the stairs, right? She kind of gets on her hands and knees and she goes real quick. And then if she wants down, she sits at the top of the stairs and she screams, a perfectly acceptable thing for a one-year-old. Like, I need to get down there. I'm going to sit here and scream until you pick me up and put me down the stairs. So what do we do out of our cruel intentions as a parent? We help turn her around and put your foot down and we help do it. And then we stick her right in the middle on the landing and we go and sit on the bottom one and we look at her. And she thinks we're the meanest thing ever. She's like, what are you doing? I am right here. Why are you not picking me up and carrying you down with you? And, and we try and coax her. Now, now, why do we do that? I'm like, child, it would be quite embarrassing if when you're in junior high and you need to go down the stairs, you have to call me and I pick you up and carry you down the stairs, right? I'm doing this out of love. You need to learn how to go down the stairs yourself. But she oftentimes does not feel that love. Why? Because it challenges her. It pushes her beyond her comfort zone. But as parents, we have a knowledge that she does not have and we know what's best for her. So we push her out of love. God has a knowledge that is far above what we possess. And oftentimes he will push us, not because he's some cruel being, not because he's mad or angry, but because he loves us too much to allow us to stay the same. And he pushes and he challenges us to grow deeper. And his motive of doing so is love. And that's what he was doing with his disciples. That's what he was doing with Martha and Mary and Lazarus is out of love. He waited because he wanted to push their faith into somewhere deeper that they did not even know that it could go. And so they decide to head back towards Jerusalem. Thomas says, well, maybe we'll all die, but here we go. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Back in that time, if you died, you were embalmed and buried on the very same day, typically, that you died. So he's already been dead for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She went out of the house, probably out right outside towards the city gates and met him. But, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, Martha is not thinking miracle here. She's not thinking you can bring Lazarus back. And we'll see that from some of her comments later on. But this is a saying of God, I, I thought you would do this, Jesus, but you didn't, but I still trust you. My faith is still in you. I, I still believe who you are. So 23, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's good theology. Yes, dead bodies will come back to life. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. But Jesus pushes her faith to a level that she did not realize she could go. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, 
I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel who has come into this world. The son of God who is coming into the world. See, our second source of hope in the midst of death is the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ is our second source of hope in the face of death. See, what Jesus challenges Martha to do here is to move from an abstract belief about God, that is true, the resurrection of that, a true belief, and to move from an abstract belief to a personal belief, a personal belief in a person, and Martha passes the test. She passes it with flying covers. This is one of the best announcements of who Jesus is that we ever see in the New Testament on this side of Jesus's death and resurrection. She says, yes, yes, I believe that this is who you are. But notice Jesus takes her theology, which is good. He takes her belief, which is good. And notice where he squarely places all of it on himself. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus saying all those things that you believe, it focuses, it points, it centers on me. See, as Christians, what is the very core and center of our faith. It's not works that we do, certainly not an achievement that we make. That's not the center of our faith. It's not even a doctrinal statement like this. Martha had good theology, but no, there was a deeper level still. It's not even a book as important as that is to our faith. That's not the core, the very center of our faith. Think about it. How many Christians lived in this time before the New Testament was even written? They believed in Jesus. See, the core and center of our faith is the person of Jesus Christ and the events of the resurrection. The core of our faith as Christians lands on Jesus and the resurrection. It all rises and falls. If Jesus is who he says he is and he does what he says he can do, then everything changes from that. But if it doesn't, it all falls apart real quick. And he brings everything and puts it on himself. See, if you can prove that either of these things are false, that Jesus didn't exist, that he wasn't God, and if you can prove that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, all of Christianity falls apart real quick. That's why the apostle Paul, who gave his life, radically converted and planted churches throughout the world, said this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying it it all goes on the resurrection. He's saying if the resurrection didn't happen, the world should just look at us and laugh and we would deserve it. Because man, our lives are a joke if the resurrection didn't happen. See, it all falls on this. Is Jesus who he says he is? Did the resurrection of Jesus actually happen? It reminds me of when you played Jenga. Anyone remember Jenga, a little game where you had like the things like that? Jenga, that bottom row would be Jesus and the resurrection. And if you pull out the bottom row, what happens? Everything falls down, right? It's not the top or near the top where you can easily pull a piece, but it's the bottom. It's on which everything else that we live depends on that. Is Jesus who he says he is? Does the resurrection actually happen like he claims it to be? See, he he pushes here with Martha and I think it can push us today because it's possible to believe true things about Christianity, but not to believe in Jesus. 
It's possible to believe truth about what the Bible teaches, about what Christianity teaches, but not to believe in Jesus. And that's where he pushes Martha to. You believe correctly, but do you believe in me? See, lots of people like to be spiritual. We like to talk about how spiritual we are. But the question is, do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe in him? And I wanna challenge you today that, that if your belief is just in a set of doctrines, that we need to go like Martha does from this abstract belief in what Jesus can do, what the Bible teaches to a personal belief in Jesus, that it all revolves around him. And if you're exploring Christianity, there's lots of different ways and things that people may say to you. I would challenge you just to explore these two things. Is Jesus who he says he is? And did the resurrection actually happen? All the rest, it goes on top of that. Don't study the other things, study those two things. If you're really wanting to know, is Christianity true? Lock in on those two. Is Jesus who he says he is? And does the resurrection happen? Because he claims to be the resurrection and the life. And in the face of death, we don't need a doctrinal statement. We don't need anything else. What we need most in the face of death is Jesus himself. That's what we need. Verse 28, when she had said this, that's Martha, she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come out with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? The third source of hope that we have in the face of death is the passion of Jesus. The passion of Jesus. There's a word here used in verse 33. It's also used in our next verse in verse 38. It's translated that Jesus was deeply moved. Deeply moved. It's a very unique word in the Bible. In extra biblical Greek and written around this time, this is the same word used when a horse snorts loudly and angrily at someone. It's not just like Jesus was sad. This is a word of anger, of outrage that Jesus has. It's the same word that was used when the disciples, by the disciples, when that expensive perfume was poured out on Jesus and they thought it should have been, should have been sold and said, and they scolded the woman. It's that same word, like, how dare you waste this? That's the same word that Jesus has. This is more than just a small sadness. This is outrage at the scene but it's also outrage combined with grief, right? He's greatly troubled. Verse 35, the shortest verse in your Bible, Jesus wept. The God of the universe with tears rolling down his cheeks. 
Why? Why is he crying? Why is he so moved by the scene? We might be like, oh, well, because his friend died. Yeah, but Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? Like you, you don't cry in a movie if you know like, oh no, they didn't really die. They're coming right back to life. Ah, it's just a, it's just a fake out. Like I know the end, like, no, wh- why is Jesus crying? Because see, his anger and grief is not here expressed towards a person. He's not angry at Mary or Martha. He's not angry at the people who are, who are mourning, but he's seeing the effects of sin and death on the world. And it so outrages and moves him that something has to be done. God is not a passive bystander to the results of sin and death in this world. He does not sit back unaffected and unmoved by what goes on. He doesn't sit back and just say, well, that's too bad. I hope things work out. He's the God who enters in and feels people's pain and wants to do something about it. See, in pain, we often ask the question, why? Why? Why, God? Why is this happening to me? And most of the time in the Bible and most of the time in life, God doesn't answer that one. He normally doesn't tell us why. But if we switch our question just a little bit and ask, where is God? Where is God in my pain? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God in the face of death? Where is God? He's right there with you. He's not far off. He's not close to the needs of his people. He's right there with us. He weeps and is outraged seeing what sin and death does in this world. And so it moves him that he has to do something. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved that same word again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, "Um, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days, right? Martha's not thinking miracle. She's thinking very practically like, oh, Jesus, if you wanted to say your goodbye in person, you should have been here on time. This is gonna really smell bad. But it's also, as, as any person back then, especially in a Jewish audience would have known, it's significant that the text has told us multiple times now that Lazarus was dead for four days. See, they kind of had this belief that the first three days someone died, that their spirit hovered somewhere close to the body and maybe could be reanimated. Maybe they could come back to life. But on the fourth day, they were dead, dead, like all the way dead. They were truly dead. They were beyond hope for them. So you remember when Jesus delayed two days and said, it's for your good? He delays that in their mind, they're thinking there is no way possible. If he had gone right away, Lazarus would have still been dead, but only for two days. But now he shows up, Lazarus has been dead for four days. They're thinking, nope, it's, it's beyond hope. If Jesus maybe had gotten here earlier, something could have happened, but Lazarus is gone. His spirit has left him. He's rotting in the tomb. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
commentators and preachers love to note here that if Jesus had forgotten to address the man's name, a whole bunch of dead bodies would have just wandered out of the hillside and like started walking around like, wait, who is he calling on? No. Verse 44, the man who had died, who was dead, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, which would have been customary for them, and his face wrapped with a cloth, he came out. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. See, our fourth source of hope in the face of death is the provision of Jesus. The provision of Jesus. See, he says what he's going to do to Lazarus, and then he doesn't. It's one thing to make outlandish claims. It's another thing to actually do it himself. Jesus claims, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, anyone could walk around and say that phrase. Anyone could say, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. And our natural response to anyone who says that would be, we'll prove it. And so Jesus does. He proves it, telling his disciples what's going to happen. And then he doesn't. And if, if we were to continue to read through John chapter 11 and we get into chapter 12, we realize that this is one of the very last events before Jesus enters into the final week of his life. This is a picture in the gospel of John of what's about to happen. He predicts Lazarus's death and resurrection, and then he pulls it off just like he predicted his own. It's impressive to be able to do it, obviously. It's even more impressive because he called it beforehand. See, uh, one of the most famous moments, most likely, I think, in baseball history, took place in October 1st, 1932. I don't think many of us were around then watching it on the TV. Cubs versus Yankees. Cubs didn't win, spoiler alert. As one who lived in Chicago, they lost for a long time. All right, it was four to four in the fifth inning. There was a Yankee batter coming to bat and the Cubs dug out or the, the bench was just giving him grief. They were trash talking him, kind of harassing him. And he goes up to bat, strike one. He doesn't swing, comes right over the plate, doesn't swing, looks at it. The bench just gets more rowdy, yells at him. Ah, you can't hit anything, you can't hit him. And he looks at the bench, looks at the pitcher and he points to center field. The second pitch comes, it comes right in. He doesn't swing. It goes right in, strike two. Oh man, now the bench is having it. They're letting him have it. You can't do anything. Why don't you swing your bat? You scared. He looks at them and he points to center field again. The third pitch comes and Babe Ruth hits the ball somewhere between 450 to 490 feet to straight center field right where he had pointed twice. And suddenly the Cubs bench was very quiet. He started walking away. See, it's impressive to hit a game-winning home run in the World Series, but it's legendary when not once but twice you call your shot and you do it exactly where you say. See, Jesus calls his shot and then does it exactly how he says. See, if someone were to ask me, why are you a Christian? Or maybe, why aren't you just a Christian? But why are you a pastor? Why have you given your life to this? Like, what is the big deal? Why are you doing this? It's that Jesus predicted his own death and his own resurrection multiple times. He pointed to the cross and then he pointed to the grave and then he pulled it off. And no one else in human history has done anything close to it. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, I'm gonna go with the guy who can pull off his own death and resurrection just like he told it before and then follows through with it. 
This is what makes Christianity so unique and that our hope is not placed on following a certain set of morals. It's not, our hope is not on practicing a certain thing and hoping we find enough favor in someone else's eyes to receive favor. Our hope is in a man who called his death, called his resurrection, and then did it because he wasn't just a man. He is God. He is the resurrection and the life. That's why he calls us to follow him. That's why he has the authority to do so. He took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died, defeated death forever by rising from the dead. And this miracle of Lazarus is just a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do merely weeks later. And so the question for us is, have we experienced this life with Jesus? Is your hope bound up to this man, this God, who stared death in the face and said, it will not defeat me, I will rise again in three days. And then he does it. See, Jesus just doesn't claim to be a good person. He doesn't just claim to be a good teacher. Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life. And then he shows it in his own life by dying for us and rising from the dead. The invitation to us is to place our faith in this person. Just as Mary and Martha did, I'm sure Lazarus did. Can you imagine Lazarus? Like, well, where, where am I at? Hey, hey, look, check it out. It's Jesus. Just as his disciples one day would as well when they saw Jesus do this again, but not with Lazarus, but to himself. God, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. God, that our greatest hope in life and our greatest hope in death is found in you. God, we need you through each and every day. God, if there's anyone here today who has never placed their faith squarely on you, on what you've done for them by paying for sin on the cross and then defeating over death when you rose from the grave that next day, three days later. God, and right now, would you move in their hearts? And if that's you this morning, just in the stillness of this moment, just cry out to God. Tell him you believe. You believe that he is who he says he is, that he died and rose from the dead, that he is the only way to defeat death, to have eternal life because he is the resurrection and the life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.